Everybody well? Good. Good, good, good. Sorry, I just got a little off track. I saw Scott and it distracted me. He really is that good looking this morning. All right. <laughs> did my did my picture make it to you? There they are. All right, great. So I have a family. I'd like to introduce you to them. They, they weren't here. They're actually back where I live. The girl on the far right is our nanny, so I didn't make her. But the other five are ours. So if you look around, you'll see, um, well, we didn't make Mickey Mouse either. But we have five kids. The blue shirt is our oldest. He's Fields. You go the gray shirt boy. That's our second one. Cannon, pink Taller jacket is our third. Gracie, pink, shorter girl is our fourth. Banner Kate and the baby attached to our nanny is Rundle. So we have five kids. We had them in eight years and we homeschool. So now your judgment of us is complete. Okay? (laughs) So if you can recover from that, great. If not, I understand. Steve will be back next week and it'll be fine. But, um, that's our world. That's kind of what we get to do. And as Steve mentioned, I work at the Wesley Foundation and have been doing that since 2000. And uh, this is a treat for me because I don't normally get out and speak in these kind of settings. I'm, I'm normally speaking, training, doing that kind of stuff to our staff. We have a staff of about 98, um, and that's what I do. So coming out here into these kind of uh, opportunities when I spoke at uh, youth camp or one camp, sorry, um, this past year, it was it was a treat. So again, thanks for this opportunity. Now let me say a little bit about Stephen Randall, just because I can, and I'm up on the stage, and they haven't cut my mic yet. Um, so Steve and I met when it, when I was at Wesley as a student. What you had to do was you had to get up the guts and ask someone to meet with you. That was like how it worked. And if you didn't, you didn't know anybody. And so I I got up the guts and I chose to see if Steve would ever meet with me, and he said yes, and so that was around in 1998 that we started to meet together, and he started to disciple me and mentor me, and that has continued until present day. We had our last session, or our most recent session last night, and uh, he is, I, don't, I can't remember, I can't recall and, and conceive of someone that I've learned from more, that I've been um, instigated to love God more than Steve. And so he's a beacon for me in my life, someone who has carried me through in so many different ways. Yeah, it's true. All that's true, because if you lie at church, you, you know, you get hit by lightning. So um, I'm speaking the truth. And then with Randall, there's probably no one, there's hardly, I can say it this way, can't think of many more people that I'd rather spend time with than Randall. Um, most of my stories about Randall, I can't tell you. Um, just because I want you to continue to, you know, respect her and stuff like that. But uh, <laughs> one thing I love about Randall, there's a lot. But one thing I love about Randall is how passionate she is. When she's for something, she's really for it. And when she's against something, she's really against it. She's 100% full tilt all the way. And, and this morning, I actually want to talk to you about that quality. Not about Randall. The sermon's not about Randall, but it is. I don't know. I thought about it, but um, it's really about passion. I love, I love passion. I think we're all kind of attracted to passion. It's, it's something that, um, for me, I spend a lot of time talking about. With college kids, they love to talk about what they're passionate for. They're trying to figure out who they're going to be passionate with, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. I, I love to try to help people understand 
really what they're what they should be passionate about in the sense of how they've been made and how they've been wired and how God wants to use them. And so passion is a good thing. I've experienced some things in my life that I would say would be moments, you know, where it's kind of just typified by the idea of passion. I was in second grade and I was at a um, I won't name it, but I was at an independent Baptist private school and um, very strict. We'll leave it at that. I won't say any more about the school, but um, in a very heavy persuasion towards certain things. So second grade, I get a note from a girl. And her name was Missy Williams, and it was one of those origami-type notes, you know, where I didn't, I never knew how to do that. I'm left-handed, so you just never learn when you're left-handed to do those kind of things. But I unfolded it finally, and I read it, and it was a page long, and it was all about me and how much she was into me at second grade. And at the end of the, she ended it this way. Now, a second grader, this is impressive, if you really think about it. The persuasion that she had was amazing because this was her last line to convince me that we should go together. And it was this, I love the word, comma, but I love you best. Now that is passion (laughs) in an independent Baptist school. I'm telling you, to be as heretical as she was, to place her love for me over the love for the Bible was passion at second grade. Uh, We dated uh, for about four days, and then we broke up. But it was passionate, you know, for four days. Extraordinarily passionate. I still have that note, actually. I actually own that note and still have it, just so, because um, it's a fun, fun memory. But uh, moving on, when when I started to date my wife, we were about three months into dating, and we went up to Chimney Rock, North Carolina, to take some of her friends from England to see just different parts of the southeast, because they were coming to visit. And we did this hike, and it was kind of rainy that day. And um, James and, and Annie kind of split off from us to kind of go do something else. And so Deborah and I were hiking through, and we, we kind of came to this place where you could just see everything, you know, the, at the top, Chestnut Falls and all that kind of stuff. And we were talking, and it was just kind of that moment, and, and we shared a kiss. Now, it was PG, I promise you. Like, it was God-honoring kiss. He was fine with it. And But it was this kiss, and it was like the moment, you know, with the rain, the hike in North Carolina and everything else, it was passionate. It, like, awakened something in us that we still are feeding off of because now we've been married for 16 years. It was something that unlocked us in our hearts and towards one another because of that passion. And so passion's a great thing. I'm all for passion. And when I was growing up in college and, and, and growing up, what I mean by the growing up, like from a Christian standpoint, because that's kind of when I really got serious, I began to be introduced to this idea of passion for God. And we would hear that at Wesley when we were there nearly every week. And if you tried to buy, go to the Christian bookstore, because there, there used to be Christian bookstores. And are, are there still Christian bookstores? Okay. Not in really in Athens. You have to go to Amazon, which is a Christian bookstore. And... <laughs> You would go to these Christian bookstores and there would be sections of books and you could just see all these different books that were trying to help you become passionate for God. And there weren't really podcasts at the time, but if you got a tape and listened to a sermon, a lot of times you'd hear you need to be passionate for God. And that's true. I mean, we Steve mentioned earlier, we want to love God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, and all of our strengths. Like That's passionate love for God. And so I began to question and all of us growing up in God and in college began to question and say well am I 
passionate for God. If we're supposed to be passionate for God, it's an easy question to ask yourself, am I? And you kind of begin to evaluate yourself. And, and, and am I passionate for God today? Am I passionate for God the next day? Am I passionate enough for God? Am I passionate for God compared to this person or compared to that person? And honestly, those questions usually led me to not so great places. Because usually I was thinking that I was passionate for God because I was better than so-and-so. You know, I raised my hands more or I laid on my face more or my fast lasted longer than so-and-so. Or I realized that I just wasn't being able to sustain passion for God. It would feel good in the moment. It would feel good for a while, but then maybe I wouldn't feel so passionate and it would kind of dip down. And it was constantly not constant. That was the only thing that was constant was that I wasn't constant in my passion for God. And neither were any of our friends. And so we were always trying to get there. There was this place we knew that we could get there where we would be passionate for God, but we were always trying to get there. And thankfully, the Lord asked or led me to the place where he uh, wanted me to ask a different question. Instead of, am I passionate for God? The question was this, what's God passionate for? Right. So the question was not, what am I passionate for? But the question actually was, what is God passionate for? And is God passionate for anything, Does, is there some kind of desire in his heart that moves him things? Because when you're passionate for something, you move. There's movement involved. You don't stand still. You move towards what you have, and then you move from what you have towards what it wants you to do. There's always movement and passion. And so what was God passionate for? And, and what I have discovered is that God's passionate for us. He's passionate for us. Now, Today, in church world, if you want to find out about God's passion, here's your typical talk. Here's your typical idea. God's passionate for God, that he's passionate for himself, that he is for himself, he, he loves himself, and he's all about God, that God is focused on God, and that he's passionate for himself, and he's passionate for his glory. And I appreciate that perspective. I understand that perspective. I know the verses that those ideas come from but i just want to i'm here today and, and if you don't like this i'll be gone so don't worry but i'm here today to tell you that's just not the full picture and the reason that's not the full picture because if you look at the life of jesus you don't find that anywhere you can't you can't find it and what jesus told us is that he and the father were one and then what hebrews tells us is that he is the exact representation of god 100 percent perfect and so when you see Jesus, you don't see him focused on himself. You don't see Jesus passionate for himself. You see him passionate for us from the beginning all the way through. Now, I'm going to show you that in different places. If you have a Bible or a phone that turns into one, you can go ahead and make that transition and turn to Isaiah 53. So we'll start even before Jesus was currently on earth or came to earth as a human being. And this, this passage is a special passage for me. This is part of my journey into understanding God's heart. If you were to look at my Bible, if you could see it, most of y'all, I promise you, wouldn't be able to see it because I can tell how generally how old you are and I know you, how your eyes work. But if you could see my Bible, you'd see right above it where it says God's heart. And the reason this is a special passage for me because when I really wanted to understand God's heart, this was the passage he led me to. And what I would do for Lent for about seven years in a row so uh, January and, and to March, I would only read this chapter. 
This was it. I would just shut the whole Bible down and I would just read these 12 verses. And honestly, most days it was boring because that's only 12 verses. Like, yeah, there's something else. And I knew there was something else, but God was just pushing me and pushing me and pushing me into this passage. And other days, it wasn't boring. It was actually life-changing. So I just want to show you something that, that is super important when we come to God's heart, God's passion, and understanding it from this passage. So it begins, who has believed our message? I'm going to go through this quickly to get to where I am, but I want to read it all so you see it. Who has believed our passage, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. So at this point, I don't want you to see. These are the questions that you should ask yourself. What is Jesus doing and why? What is he doing and why? Because that's going to help you understand his passion, is what he is, what is he doing and why. Because see, we can see what humanity was doing in response to him. We were moving away. Remember, passion moves you towards something, and, and so we have no passion for God at this point. Humanity is not passionate for Jesus at this point. They're moving away from him. They're despising him. They're rejecting him. They're trying to create distance between him at this point. But he continues, Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet our, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So again, we're trying to create distance. He's not. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone where? Astray. Again, distance away. Each of us has turned to his own way. We've created a different path away from him. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor there was any deceit in his mouth. And here's, here's where you're going to get to see it. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Now just to take a pause and just let you soak this in for one second. So we read that, and and it sounds graphic already, but if you were to read that in in its original language and kind of understand the way that the author is trying to give you the picture, it's this. If you were to bloom that out and kind of see that full picture, that that idea of crushed right there is trampled to death, right? So it's he was pleased to trample his son to death, and that word pleased there is this. If if you've ever seen like a, a movie or a commercial or even have the idea, a TV show, where someone's so happy, and they're usually from Ireland or something like that, they jump up and they click their heels together. Have you ever seen that? You know that idea? It's really hard to do because uh, we don't wear shoes that click. But it's that idea, you know, you click your heels together. That's the idea of that word pleased. So there's something in the heart of God. Even though his son was in complete anguish, his son was being trampled to death by our sins, that there was something in the heart of God that was so pleasing in that moment. That was, that was so je- joyful and, and gratifying that he would do that, that he would let that happen. There was anguish, obviously, because of what was happening to his son, but there was something else. 
something else that would drive him to the place to where he was as excited as he could be to the point to where if we could see God in that moment, you know, when the clouds turn dark, we've all seen the movie, right? So the clouds turn dark and then Jesus bows his head and he dies. That at that moment there's something where God clicks his heels. He's that passionate for something. And you get to see it right after that. It says this, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, his children. So the reason all of that took place, the reason that God would do any of that, the reason that Jesus would say yes to any of that, was for the opportunity to see his offspring, just for the chance. Because it's not a guarantee. If you can, we're not going to read the whole thing. If you keep going, keep going down. It talks about the many. So that means that there are going to be some that are left out. And we kind of understand the idea that not everyone's going to get saved and so on and so forth. So this wasn't to guarantee that everyone would be there. This was to give the opportunity for anyone to be back to the place to where Jesus could see them as offspring. Now, it's easy to understand from the standpoint of why would he do this, we, we, we know, I mean, there's a cross right here, right? Like, we've heard this story. Okay, you, you stare at this every Sunday. Is this here every Sunday? So you stare at this every Sunday, right? And we kind of know the story. But if you kind of pull back from that and really think about it, every picture that we ever see of God in heaven, Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, it's full of worship and glory. It's full of it. There are these things that God has created that fly around him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and all they do is worship him. All they do is tell him that he's fantastic. All they do is bring him glory. There's the heavenly hosts that sing these chants over and over and over, and there's all this beautiful splendor and celestial majesty that's just engulfed in this concept of who God is. You cannot find a passage in the Bible where when you see heaven... It's not full of glory and majesty. It's, it's there. And so the, the thing that I want you to think about is if God's never been without glory, then why would he need more of it? If God's never been to the place to where he's lacking glory because he has these people that are telling him that he's glorious all the time, literally like this. Like we shoo things away that spin around us. God doesn't shoo that away. He's planned for these little things to fly around him all the time. And they just say, you're great, you're great, you're great. Glory, majesty, honor, da 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 Heaven has never lacked glory. It's never lacked it. The only thing that's lacked is us. That's the only thing that heaven has lacked. And so what we see oftentimes when we think about the cross, like, well, we do this and now we're going to give him glory, which is totally fine. I'm totally fine with us giving glory to God for that. But what I want you to see is that there's a difference between our reaction to God and the reason that God does something. And I'll take you back to Disney. Let me try to explain this as, as easy as I can. So remember we went to Disney. Five kids, Disney World for six days. I should have told you to pray for us, right, because we needed it. But we did make it. Okay, so imagine I'm on a ride. This is, again, I'm trying to explain this to you. Imagine I'm on a ride and all five of my kids are on that ride. Even though Rundle should not be on the ride, he didn't make the height, you know, thing. But we just snuck him on there. So we're all on Space Mountain, if you know what Space Mountain is. 
And right in the middle of Space Mountain, there's something goes wrong, and all five of my kids fall off, and they're all dangling off that ride just where they could fall, you know, stories and stories down. And at that point, I see my kids dangling from a ride about to get injured or die. And in my heart, I go, if I save them, everybody will see me. And there's a kid over there already has his phone out, you know, for YouTube. Because that's what we do. Anytime we see something now, we're just ready to film it. So there's a kid out there already to film it. So I'll know that I'll get filmed. I know that I'll get really famous. I know that this will be, I'll, I'll be seen as like a hero. Disney will probably give me lifetime tickets. I'll probably get to go in those underground tunnels that everyone hears about but no one's ever been in. Like all these, this will be amazing. If I do this, I'll save the kids. And so I save the kids so that... I can get famous, and you'll like me better, and you'll think that I'm a great hero. Now, if I did that, and I, and, and I saved my kids, you said, why would you do it? I was like, I wanted you to think that I was a great hero. I wanted you to think that I was great. I wanted you to think that I was amazing, and that now that I am, you think that I'm this great thing. Now, if, if, I, were to, if I was on the news and I got interviewed, why would you do this? And I said that. But oh, what a jerk, right? God, I'm praying for those kids now because they're still stuck with that dad, right? But that's that's what we think God is. If that's the only reason that He's doing things is just to give Himself glory. If, if He's passionate for Himself and He's going to give Himself glory, then this whole idea of the cross wasn't for salvation's purposes; it was just for His glory purposes. And so He's just doing all this for Himself. Now, instead, you take me back to that story of Walt Disney and my kids fall off and I immediately see my kids. And so regardless of what it's going to do to me, regardless of how it's going to hurt me, regardless of what kind of danger I might put myself in, I immediately jump down and save my kids. And then I get interviewed by Disney and say, why would you do that? And I was like, I didn't want to live life without my kids. I, did, I, I couldn't imagine letting them just dangle there. I'm going to pick them up and save them because... They're my kids. No matter, they're like, do you know that you could have been hurt? I didn't. Ma- it didn't matter if I could have been hurt. I was going to save my kids because they're my kids. Now you see that and you go, oh man, you know, you're crying. You know, you're having to reapply your makeup. Why? Because that's passion, right? Because passion moved me towards my kids. See, what I'm all for God's glory. Just I, I need you to know that I'm all for God's glory. I'm, I love to worship just as much as you do, maybe more. I don't, it's not a contest, but I really love it. Like, I'm all for giving God glory because he's amazing, but here's what you need to know about God's glory. It's not God's reason for doing something. It's our reaction to God for the reason that he does things. The reason God does something is because he's passionate for you. The reason that I saved my kids in the second part of the story was because I'm passionate for them. Your reaction to my reason for saving those kids is that you would glorify me. But you're a great dad. He's amazing. He just saved his kids. He didn't even think about what it would do to him. That's your reaction to me, and then you would glorify me. Does that make sense? But if I'm doing that to get glory, you would think that I was a jerk. You would think that I was arrogant, self-absorbed, and you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't want anything to do with me. But we think God is his self-absorbed and, and wants all this for himself, the glory for himself. It's just not true. Now, he's, he's all worthy of his glory. Why? Because his reason... For being so passionate is because he could be that way. He really is that lovely. He really is that great. He really is that majestic. But instead of him saying, I'm going to focus on myself, I'm going to empty myself of that. 
and then give my life to those who maybe will give their lives back to me. Maybe. Because again, if he would do this, he could see his offspring again. See, his movement towards us, that passion that he has for us, always begins with him. It's Romans 5.8. It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's, there it is. He demonstrates his own love for us. And it's while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning, it starts with him. And the reason this is so important is because so many times when we think we need to be passionate for God, we think that it starts with us. And any time you try to start something in and of yourself and then try to get to God, you'll never get to God. You can't make it. You want to know why you can't make it? Because that God doesn't exist. You'll you'll make it to a God that doesn't exist. You'll try to make it to a God that doesn't exist because he doesn't need you to start something. But we read things that way. And when it comes to passion for God, we think that we have to get to a certain level or get to a certain place. Let me show you how we twist things real quick. If we can go to the Luke passage. This is the... um, Probably the most famous New Testament story that Jesus tells, the prodigal son. You know the story. Does everyone know that story? You could be a first-time visitor and never heard of God before, and you probably heard this story. It's like famous. Right? So the son gets his money, goes and wastes it, and then at some point he realizes that he really, really screwed up. So he decides to come back to his dad's house. That's kind of the gist the gist of the story. But we read this and it says, look, so he got up and went to his father. So again, we think we've got to start it. We've got to do this. We've got to get ourselves to God. And if we do, then look, he'll come running to us. If we just start moving towards God, he'll run towards us. And when we think that way, we think that it begins on us. And therefore, the entire burden of our passion for God, the entire burden of our relationship with God rests on our activity. And when it rests on our activity, we will always fail. We can't make it. Because, see, we read this and and we think that, but understand what's happening in the story. The father was extraordinarily rich, right? He had tons of things that were going on in his kingdom, in his little empire. And if you've ever been to Israel or anywhere near the Middle East, you know that the only way that you can see a long way off is to get somewhere high up. You've got to perch yourself up. Because if you don't, you're just gonna, the only thing you're going to see is that first hill, and then you can't see anything else. So what the father had to do was go and position himself in a place very high up in order to see a far way off so that he could see if his son ever would come back. How long do you think the father waited? How long do you think the father perched himself up? How long do you think the father stationed himself in a place where he could possibly see? His son, if he ever came back, he had this. That son had to spend a lot of money. That son then had to go get a job, realize that wasn't a good job. That son then had to go live with pigs and realize that's not a good place to live. Then his son had to get back, and it's, it's not like his son could take an Uber. His son had to walk. Probably months, could have been years. He was looking for him the entire time. It didn't start when his son realized that he shouldn't live with pigs, realized that his dad might take him back as a servant. It started with his dad the moment that his son left, positioning himself to see him back because the passion for God makes him move somewhere and the movement of God moves us or moves him to the place where he can be with us. This passage, the next passage, look, we read this one all the time. We get this. This is so easy to see it twisted. Do we have the next one, James? There it is. 
come near to God and he'll come near to you. Now, again, that seems like we've got to start it. We've got to do that. But when we read that in that sense and only read that verse instead of in light of everything else, we're going to misconstrue that passage. And we're going to think that it's all up to us. Because if you were to understand that Jesus says that no one comes to the Father unless the Holy Spirit draws them. No one. So you can't come near to God unless you're drawn to God. It's impossible. You can't make it. The reason that this works this way is this. Let's say that God is God's over here, right? And he's drawing himself towards us. He's moving towards us. See this way? He's going this way. But so many times, because of the way that we don't really care, the way that we're rebellious, so on and so forth, we don't draw near to God, and so we start drawing away from him. He's over there, so we start drawing away from him. So I'm walking this way, and God's walking this way, metaphorically, just so that you can see the word picture. When we draw near, come near to God, and he's come already drawing near to us, when we're moving that way as well, if we just would stop, basically, and this stuck at a barely turn, that's why Song of Solomon says, just one glance of our eye, he, his heart's ravished. Because when he, we just turn back, then he's already moving towards us, and we get to that point to where we meet again. That's why you can be in the worst place ever. You come to church, or you get be at the worst place ever, and you just get down on your knees and start to just immediately pray and, and give yourself back to God. And what? He's there again. You're like, oh, he did it again. He was so nice. That was so gracious. I can't believe it. But it didn't start with you. It didn't start with your passion because it's not dependent on your passion. It's dependent on God's passion for you. And when it's dependent on God's passion for you, no matter where you are, what you do, he's always going to be moving towards you. Because he's chosen to, out of his free will, even though he could focus all on himself, he's chosen to just give that up so that he could focus on the opportunity to be with you. Now, the reason this is so important is because we are meant to be passionate for God. We're meant to draw near to God. We're meant to do that. But if we don't realize that it starts with God, if we don't realize that our passion for God is meant to be fueled by God's passion for us, it will only and always be religious activity. It will only and always result in us being frustrated and in us losing sight of who God actually is. God doesn't want you to understand him as someone who can only be moved when you try to move him first. He doesn't need you to initiate his desire for you. His desire for you was initiated at the beginning of time. While we were yet sinners, well before you were ever in the game of Christianity. Psalm 139, well before you even had the opportunity to think Isaiah 53, thousands of years before we even existed, he was already moving towards you. Because his passion, the thing that drives him, the reason that he does things is because of his great love for you. And then the result of that is that we get saved, we get intimacy with him, we get all these things. And then our response to that is that we give him glory. He's going to get our glory. That's... That's just how it's going to work. And the reason that he's going to get our glory is because he will never give up until he proves himself as a generous, loving father. And when you get that, you'll immediately give him glory. If you never get that, you're not really going to give him glory. You're just going to give him religious activity to try to earn something from him that he's never 
required of you in the first place. And you're trying to worship a God and please a God that doesn't exist. But the God that exists, the God that's existed since we could understand him from the beginning of time is someone who's generous. And generosity is ultimately attractive. It's hard to turn away from generosity. It's just attractive. And when we see God that way, then we'll draw near to him and then we'll meet each other because he's always drawing near to us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you're passionate for us. God, that you don't have to be. Nothing or no one is compelling you to be that way. That you've made a choice and you've stuck with that choice. And that choice is that you are going to draw near to us. That you are going to give yourself to us. That your heart for us was going to move you to great lengths. Even to the lengths that you went to on the cross for the opportunity to be with us. God, we would be the first ones to say that we don't deserve that. But we thank you, Lord, that it's not a merit system here with you. God, we thank you that you haven't called us to earn your love. We thank you that you haven't called us to earn your salvation, God. We thank you that you have given it to us. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, for those in this room today, that their hearts would be open to simply be receivers, not earners, Lord, but receivers. And from that, God, we would become more and more passionate for you. Not because we work harder, not because our determination is stronger, not because our discipline is better, but because our view of you is clearer and that we would see you for who you are. Not as someone who waits for us, but someone who's never waited and who's always run after us, who's always come towards us, who's always made the first move because you love us so much. God, you tell us in your word to see how great the Father's love is for us. Lord, help us to see that today. In Jesus' name, amen.